I'm investigative journalist and former deputy sheriff, Scott Weinberg. And I'm Anna Segan Nicolazzi, former New York City homicide prosecutor. Each week on our podcast, Anatomy of Murder, we give you the inside perspective as we dissect the layers of each case, the victim, the crime, and the investigation. You'll hear from victims, loved ones, and those actually involved in the journeys to justice. Because the heart of each of these cases and this podcast is people. Listen to Anatomy of Murder now wherever you listen to podcasts. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is episode five Skip. By midday on July 9th, 2003, DeSoto County investigators and Florida Department of Law Enforcement agents couldn't make sense of a lot of the information in the John Wells case. But there were a few things they knew for certain. One, John was alive for several hours after he woke up on the morning of Tuesday, July 8th, but dead from a gunshot wound by 4.30 p.m. the same day. Two, his grandma, best friend, and step-uncle had found a revolver at the scene of his death and hidden it from police. Three, Crime scene techs had collected other pieces of evidence at the scene nearly 24 hours after John was found that indicated foul play. Four, there were traces of drugs in John's system that didn't appear to have anything to do with his death, but were investigated nonetheless. And five, the investigation had a long way to go. Authorities' hope was that the remaining primary witness to the events of John's life on July 8th would enlighten them more. Melvin Eugene Strader Jr., who was known as Skip, was the person investigators wanted to speak with next. Skip was John's step-uncle. His father, Mel Sr., was the second husband of Pat Strader, John's biological grandmother. John and Skip were not blood-related. Investigators brought Skip into the DeSoto County Sheriff's Office for an interview at 2.15 p.m. on July 9, 2003, roughly 24 hours after John was killed. A DeSoto County detective named Kurt Mays and an FDLE agent named John Smith conducted the questioning. Due to its age, the quality of the tape recording of this interview isn't very good. The parts you'll hear have been cleaned up and the sections that are inaudible, I'll narrate with direct quotes from transcripts or police reports. One of the first things Agent Smith told Skip was that investigators had been talking with Patrick and Pat, and they would continue to do so to make sure Skip's story lined up with theirs. Obviously, we're going to be talking to Patrick and to Pat, and they've got their story that they're going to want to tell us the same as you are. We're hoping that this story is pretty much the same. I'm telling you exactly what. 
I'm Okay, well, I'm only asking you to step up to the plate. If it's not the truth, tell the truth. No, sir. While listening to this interview, which only lasted 50 minutes, by the way, I definitely got a sense that authorities were much more aggressive with Skip. Everything from the words they used to the tone in which they asked him questions felt way more intense than Detective Kim Lewis's approach with Patrick and Pat. Skip was face-to-face with two seasoned interrogators, one of whom was a special agent with FDLE. Pat and Patrick, on the other hand, had only sat down with Kim, a fairly inexperienced interviewer from DeSoto County Sheriff's Office, who had a much calmer demeanor. According to case reports, the detectives interviewing Skip specifically asked him what he remembered from July 8th. They wanted details. Skip told detectives that he woke up at Pat's early that morning because he was expecting a semi-truck to arrive at the sawmill across the street from the house at 7 o'clock. After Skip's dad, Mel Sr., died in June, Skip had been driving to and from Arcadia from his house in North Fort Myers to keep the sawmill business running. During the work week, he lived at Pat's house with her and John. According to Skip, the semi-truck showed up around 7.15 a.m., and from then until 9 a.m., Skip unloaded 480 wood pallets from the truck and reloaded it with cut lumber. Around 9 o'clock, he asked Pat to wake John up so John could help him finish the job. According to Skip, the forklift he had been using to put lumber on the tractor trailer had overheated, and he needed another set of hands to get the rest of the lumber onto the semi. So John helped pitch in, and after that, Skip said he also asked John to unload some more pallets from a trailer he'd driven up from North Fort Myers. By 9.30 a.m., all of the heavy lifting was done. There was just one more small chore left to do, take the trash out. According to Skip, there were a few minutes between 9.30 and 10 o'clock when he and John went inside the house to cool off. During that time, Pat asked John to run a thank you card over to a neighbor's house who'd attended Mel Sr.'s funeral a few weeks earlier. After John returned from that errand, Skip said he asked the teen to gather up all of the trash from the house and sawmill and put it in a trailer and drive it all over to the dump in the woods near Joshua Creek. John went outside to do that, but came back a few minutes later with bad news. The wooden trailer used for hauling trash had a flat tire. Skip said John offered to drive up to Walmart and buy a can of Fix-A-Flat tire repair to see if that would solve the problem. And after getting some cash from Pat, John took off in Pat's blue-green Ford Explorer SUV, which was also the vehicle he was allowed to drive after getting his license. For those of you listening who don't know what Fix-A-Flat is, it's a can of adhesive and aerosol that seals and inflates a tire. Skip said John returned from Walmart with the Fix-A-Flat about a half hour later, which would have been around 11.30 a.m., and he attempted to use the Fix-A-Flat on the bum tire, but it didn't do the trick. Eventually, John and Skip worked together in Pat's backyard and just ended up replacing the bad tire with a spare one from another trailer. That process took about an hour, according to Skip, and the last time he saw John, it was roughly 12.15, 12.30 p.m., when authorities asked Skip if he'd seen John arm himself with his 22 revolver, Skip said he didn't see John go inside and get the gun, but he remembered seeing a glimpse of it as the teen was riding off. Skip said it was in a holster sitting below the handlebars on the four-wheeler. But right here is where I want to stop for a minute and go through this part of Skip's statement a little more. 
Skip said for sure that he knew John went to the Walmart in Arcadia to buy the can of Fix-A-Flat, and he was home by 11.30ish, so that was where I started. According to GPS, the store on Highway 70 in Arcadia is approximately a seven-minute drive from Pat's house, one way. So that means if John was going the speed limit, he would have had a total drive time of roughly 14 minutes to go to the store and get home. According to DeSoto County's case file, a deputy went to the Walmart to verify if John made the trip, and the officer found proof confirming what Skip said. Walmart's surveillance cameras captured video of John entering the store at 11.15 a.m. on July 8, 2003, and leaving six minutes later at 11.21 a.m. What's kind of weird is that according to the receipt log from the cash register that John checked out at, his transaction took place at 11.23 a.m., two minutes after the video surveillance cameras said he left. This is a small discrepancy, so I wanted to know, how does his purchase ring up two minutes after the surveillance video shows him leaving? Honestly, I think this is a result of likely one of two things happening. One, the store's register was off by two minutes, or two, the timestamp on the security cameras was lagging behind real time. It's hard to know which for sure. That's why I wanted to track down and interview the deputy who went and retrieved all of this information. His name is Craig Amon, and he's now retired from DeSoto County Sheriff's Office. We spoke on the phone for a while, but unfortunately, Craig doesn't remember enough about the case. At the time, Craig said he was just a road patrol deputy who was sent to the Walmart to pick up the video surveillance tapes and check the store's transaction logs. But then, after that, he had nothing more to do with the case. But you guys know me. I didn't stop there. I submitted a public records request for a copy of the footage from the VHS tapes that were seized from Walmart. At first, staff in the records division at DeSoto County Sheriff's Office told me they would only be able to provide me with still images or freeze frames of John walking into and out of the Walmart. That was fine with me because what I was really after was getting a clear look at the timestamps on the videos just to confirm with my own eyes what time John went in and out of the store. A few days after submitting my request, DeSoto County told me they would actually have to blur or redact John's body from the images due to him being a minor. Then, a few days after that, the office called me and said they did not have the ability to even look at the tapes because they didn't have a VHS player. Six months after that, I got a call out of the blue from the department's one and only records clerk. She told me DCSO had purchased a VHS player and was reviewing a total of eight tapes seized from the Walmart. She said the tapes showed every camera angle from the store, and because of that, there were roughly two million individual frames of video to go through. She also said some of the timestamps on the tapes were off, as well as their dates, which I found odd because there's nothing written in the 2003 police reports about wrong timestamps or wrong dates. Eight months after my initial request, I'm still waiting on DCSO to process the Walmart tapes and fulfill my records request. While I wanted to be thorough, at the end of the day, whether John left at 11.21 a.m. or 11.23 a.m. still lines up with what Skip told investigators. The next thing I wanted to do to verify some of the other details in Skip's statements was to contact the driver of the semi-truck that picked up lumber from the sawmill the morning John died. 
Here's Skip recounting that for detectives. The truck showed up, I would say, between 7 and 7.15. That's in the morning? Okay. And it was the truck driver. It was J&M truck lines. Do you describe the truck driver for me? Heavy set guy, I can get a name. That driver's name was Doug Barber. For months, I've been calling, texting, and leaving Doug messages, but he's never contacted me. So here's my plug. If you're Doug Barber or know him or anyone who worked for J&M Trucking Lines out of Fort Myers, Florida in 2003, send me an email, counterclock at audiochuck.com. I might not be able to talk with Doug now, but DeSoto County Sheriff's Office interviewed him briefly in 2003. According to his statement and police reports, Doug told investigators that he arrived at the sawmill around 7.15 a.m. on Tuesday, July 8th, just like Skip had said, and he left at approximately 9.15 a.m. When detectives asked Doug if he noticed Skip and John or Pat and John arguing while he was there, he told them no. He didn't see anything out of the ordinary. Zero hostility at the homestead. He said he did have a brief conversation with John and asked the teen if he liked living in the country, to which John replied that he loved it. And that was it. Authorities took that brief statement from Doug and sent him on his way. I found nowhere in the police record that he was ever re-questioned. During Skip's interview on July 9th, FDLE Special Agent John Smith started to focus in on what Skip remembered after he last saw John. And it's during that part of the interview where things got much more formal. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo may be your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles. Just a better way to watch TV. Philo has an unlimited DVR for one year. Save all your favorite shows so you can watch on your own schedule. Philo allows for multiple profiles and multiple streams, meaning everyone in the house can have their own saved shows and up to three simultaneous streams. Never fight over who gets to pick what to watch. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like ID, Lifetime, and MTV. With Philo, you can start watching in seconds for less money and less hassle. Try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash counterclock. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash counterclock to binge all your favorite murder mysteries now. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. Engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Where will each new chapter take you? With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. You can also chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. 
Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Mr. Strader, I'm going to remind you that you are under oath. Yes, sir. You understand what perjury is. Yes, sir. And that you had sworn to tell the truth or affirm the truth. Do you still do so, sir? Yes, sir. Skip went on to tell detectives that after watching John ride off, he went inside Pat's house, sat in a recliner, watched a soap opera, and dozed off. When he stirred awake, he noticed that it was 1.30 and John was still not back from taking the trash. Skip said he was concerned about John, so he got in his Ford diesel pickup truck, rode through the pasture, and over to the trash pile to look for him. When he arrived, he said he saw John's four-wheeler backed up to the trash pile with the trailer still attached to the rear of it, but John was nowhere in sight. That's when Skip said he started yelling John's name. I blowed the horn, pulled the window down, shut the truck off, and hollered, didn't hear him, so I cranked back up, went back down the creek for the long edge of the pasture. About another 200 yards, then I blowed the horn, shut the truck off where he could hear at no time you never parked the car and got out? No, sir. I stopped the truck, but I never got out of the truck. After getting no reply from John and not seeing him at all, Skip went back to the house and told Pat he couldn't find the boy. Pat replied to Skip, saying that when she got a chance, she'd go look for him. But at that point, there was no sense of urgency. Pat made her and Skip a sandwich, they ate lunch, and afterwards, Pat mentioned she was going to the pasture to find John. Skip said she left around 2.15 p.m., 45 minutes after Skip made the first trip to search for John. About a half hour later, she returned, called Patrick Skinner, left to get gas, and to go pick Patrick up. By 3.45 p.m., Skip said everyone started to get really worried, Once Patrick arrived in his car, the group split up to search again. Skip said he told the others that he would walk the pasture by foot, starting at the sawmill, and go all the way to the trash pile while they drove in Pat's Explorer. After about a half hour of walking, Skip said he arrived to the trash pile and saw Patrick holding John's revolver, belt, and holster. Everyone was hollering for John, and within a few minutes of arriving, Patrick pointed out John's body in the ditch water. And that's when they all three left to call 911 and took the gun and the other items they'd found with them. Skip's first interview on July 9th covered the basic highlights of his version of events. Like I said, it lasted less than an hour and he didn't get into the nitty gritty details. But the next morning, Thursday, July 10th, the sheriff's office called Skip and Patrick back in for second interviews and authorities held nothing back. And I want to know what opinion you have. Because I think you're hiding something from me. I'm not hiding nothing from me. I think you're hiding a whole lot from me there, mister. Detectives wanted to know specific details from Patrick and Skip about who found what at the initial scene and what exactly the group did with those items after they discovered John. DeSoto County Detective Kurt Mays and FDLE Special Agent John Smith interviewed Patrick. What were you saying about the holster? I know that's the holster we found. Immediately afterwards, Kim Lewis and Special Agent Smith interviewed Skip. It was a, like a, a cowboy belt, and it was like a green, I guess, like what you call a leg strap or something. Okay, but there was also a third belt. 
the big belt that he normally wore every day. Or is that what you're talking about when you say cowboy belt? Right. Investigators needed to get clarification on one thing right off the bat, and that was how many belts had been found at the crime scene. According to Pat's previous statements, she said there were two belts, a holster and a strap at the scene. One belt had wildlife scenery depicted on it, and the other had a bunch of Dixie flags embroidered on it. Both were size 28, John's size. When Pat handed over the gun, holster, thigh strap, and two belts to the sheriff on July 9th, she said all of that stuff was from the original scene. What puzzled investigators on July 10th was the fact that both Patrick and Skip said they only saw one belt at the scene. So was Pat mistaken and had just given police two belts from her house that she knew were John's, but only one was really at the crime scene? My question is, why would John have had two belts on him while riding a four-wheeler in the woods at all? I know from his autopsy report that he didn't have a belt in his pants when he was fished out of the water. So if Pat's correct, that would mean he was out there with two belts sitting loosely around his waist for no reason, which just seems strange to me. What I think probably would have helped clear this issue up would have been to bring Pat in for a second interview on July 10th. But for some reason, investigators didn't ask her to come back that day. They only wanted to interrogate Patrick and Skip. Patrick's story during his second sit-down was exactly the same as what he'd said on July 9th, but this time he went into a little more detail. He'd had roughly 48 hours to process everything he'd been through, and he didn't shy away from expressing that it felt odd to find John's gun, holster, belt, and thigh strap in almost a perfect line that led him to John's body. When I saw the gun, it looked like it had been dropped. So I thought something was wrong. I didn't know what. I didn't, I didn't know what was wrong, but I felt like something was wrong. Patrick said after a few days of stewing on it, the neatness of all of the items being in a line by the time he got there was causing him to suspect that maybe he couldn't trust John's family as much as he thought he could. When I saw all the stuff scattered out, I thought he left, like, somewhere in a hurry, you know, dropped stuff on the way. But when I seen everything else, the marks I seen, the, it just, that formed that picture in my mind that somebody killed him. Here's Patrick today going over his thoughts from that time. Probably the first red flag, true red flag that I felt that day was when I started following where those breadcrumbs were, and there was almost like a suspense building, whether what I actually saw on the ground was someone pulling him off of the four-wheeler and things happening, or whether things were, I don't want to say purposely laid out, but it was almost too perfect to leave those kind of breadcrumbs to that. The fact that I was back there for, I don't know, 10 minutes, not even 10 minutes. I, I'm not sure of the timeline. I just know it wasn't long and that they claim they've been looking for him around there all day. I'm like, so you're looking for him. You've already been out here. You don't see the gun. You don't see the belt. You don't see any of this. You don't follow it to the ditch. And I do it in a matter of minutes. Kind of all that started running through my head and I started creating these things. It, it almost feels like I was trying to be set up. The longer detectives in 2003 spoke with Patrick, the more they started to think that too. 
So far, police were not leaning towards Patrick having a hand in John's death. For one, he had an alibi of being home with his mom and instant messaging his girlfriend during the time John was killed. Two, no one saw Patrick with John during the time frame of the murder. And three, he was extremely shaken up by the entire incident to the point where he was being fully cooperative with police no matter what. But as long as authorities had him willing to talk, they were going to extract as much information from him as possible and not ease up too much. Which is why they asked him on July 10th to be very specific about anything else he saw that he felt pointed to a murder and possible cover-up. Was there anything that caught your attention? Marks in the ground. Marks in the ground. What kind of marks? Like drag marks in the ground. Patrick, let me interject. For the record, describe what type of drag marks you think you saw. What I'm describing is, could have been made by a refrigerator, made by a small object. Like, when I first saw it, it was like the heel of the shoe. Yeah, something like that. It looked like somebody's feet, and somebody's feet drove across the ground. I thought I saw, when I was actually there, I thought I saw some, like right here. Did anybody else see him? Skip asked me after we got back to the house if I saw him. On top of that, Patrick went into more detail about the position of that rusty barrel he'd seen on John's back when he found him. He said he felt that the barrel's placement looked purposeful, something he's still convinced of to this day. It appeared to me like it was right over his back, like just behind his shoulders. That's the image that's burned into my head. The fact that I'm seeing this drum on top of him, to know that you know maybe he was held down there and or hit with something or just battered in that way. Uh, I just sometimes wonder what would have been going through his head, who he would have been thinking about. When detectives switched gears and sat down with Skip, they used all of the information they'd learned from Patrick to grill the 49-year-old. Where were the drag marks? The drag marks? Yeah. Show us where you saw the drag marks. I didn't see the drag marks. You saw some drag marks. It's important to tell us everything, Skip. Where, where did you see the drag marks? Point out where you saw the drag marks. I don't know if there were drag marks. Sure you do. You brought it up to discuss with Patrick. Where did you see the drag marks? If there was any drag marks, there was a mark somewhere in this vicinity. Well, why right didn't there. you tell us that? Well, I... What do you mean, if there was? You so, saw the drag marks. Now you're going to lie to me and say you didn't? Sure did you see drag marks? If that's what you call them, yes, sir. Why didn't you tell? Drag marks of what? I have no idea, sir. You have an idea. Yesterday I'd ask you something. Yes, sir. I'd ask you, did you form an opinion of what could have happened out there? And you said, I have no opinion. Now I don't know a man on this earth that didn't have an opinion over those kind of situations or those facts. And I want to know what opinion you have. Because I think you're hiding something from me. I'm not hiding nothing from you. I think you're hiding a whole lot from me there, mister. What? You tell me. You told us yesterday there was no prints. There was no, no indentation in that earth at all. You never saw anything. Then we have a boy say, well, he asked me if I saw him. He said, and the boy saw it. Well. You lied to me. I'm sorry, sir. You lied to me over a couple of things, which causes me to really think you're up to your eyeballs in this stuff. Well, I believe that. I believe that one. You got, you got an explanation to give me. And I'm hoping you're going to give me that explanation. Because I don't want to walk out of this room until I know the truth. Yesterday you sat there 
And I asked you specifically, did you see any drag marks? No, sir, I did not see any drag marks. Knowing full well you were lying your ass off to me. I don't recall you asking me that. Yes, you do. I asked yes. you specifically. You even denied it just now sitting there for a little bit. Why would you deny something that you did see when it's not pointing anything for you? There's a kid laying in the water face down. Well, I beg the difference with you. And ain't nobody gets in there to check him? Well, I'm sorry, but I'm not involved in that. Skip's nonchalant response only got the interviewers more fired up. The last thing they confronted him with had to do with information they discovered about his cell phone. They asked him directly why he hadn't used it when the group first found John. Why had he waited until he, Patrick, and Pat drove back over to Pat's house to make sure someone called 911? Skip admitted that he had the phone on him the entire time, but as far as why he didn't use it in the moment, he couldn't come up with an answer. According to case documents I've been through, Skip made four calls from his cell phone between 4 o'clock and 5.15 p.m. on July 8th, none of which went to emergency responders. At 4.29 p.m., Skip made a call to an unlisted number. It must not have lasted long because in the exact same minute, he called another anonymous number. Then, he called another number that authorities redacted from their reports. And finally, at 5.02 p.m., he called his uncle, a Florida Highway Patrol trooper named Ralph Strader. Now, just stop for a minute here and think about the time frame that these calls were placed in. 4.29, when Skip placed his first call to an unlisted number, is before any emergency responders even knew John was dead. Pat Strader didn't place the 911 call until 4.35 p.m. And 5.02 p.m., when Skip's talking to Ralph, things are erupting at the Southeast Hansel property. Police are swarming the area, and John's body is still laying dead in the water. So what did Skip and Ralph talk about during their 5 o'clock phone call? According to police reports, Skip told him that John had been shot. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Look, we all carry around different stressors, big and small. When I'm in work mode, I'm in work mode. And sometimes that dark material really affects me, but I don't always want to open up and bring it up around my husband or my young son. These stories deeply affect me, and I found that therapy is a safe space to get things off my chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing me down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. So whatever it is you need to talk about, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com counterclock today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot counterclock. For so many of us, the weather is getting warmer, and that means that we're going to say goodbye to our jackets and sweaters and say hello to shorts and tees. And this is usually around the time where a lot of us want to update our wardrobe, but we don't want to spend a fortune. Well, thanks to Quince, you can. Quince has items like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts for $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14-karat gold jewelry, and so much more. 
And the best part is that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. I recently went on a work trip to see some of the team at Audio Chuck in Indianapolis, and I had a new piece of luggage, and my husband was joining me a few days later, and we realized he didn't have a good quality piece of luggage to bring. So I went on Quince and bought him one. I'm telling you guys, this is one of the nicest piece of carry-on luggages we've ever had, and I got it on Quince. And best of all, I didn't break the bank. So get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash counterclock for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash counterclock to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash counterclock. Well, how come you told Ralph that he was all, he was born and got killed by, by somebody shooting him? Way before we even knew about it. That's not true. Oh, this one. That's exactly the truth because that's exactly what Ralph told us. That you got him on the next town and you told him that he's dead and somebody shot him. Explain to us how you made a phone call to Ralph and told him that. I didn't tell Ralph that he'd been shot. Well, how did Ralph know he'd been shot? He said, you told him. Unfortunately, I can't ask Ralph Strader about his conversation with Skip for myself because he's since died. But back in 2003, him telling authorities that Skip knew John had been shot before anyone else knew that information made Skip the prime suspect in the murder investigation. Skip's lack of ability to explain his actions only ratcheted up the pressure on him. Toward the end of his July 10th interview, Agent John Smith from FDLE was relentless in trying to get Skip to crack. That boy's dead. Yes, sir. That boy got shot and he got killed by somebody that was there yesterday that afternoon. It wasn't me, sir. I swear to God on Would you know something? I firmly believe it was you. Yes, sir. And I think you'd feel a hell of a lot better. You get it off your chest and you just tell me what happened. I think that boy pissed you off. I think that boy got right in your face. And you got right back in his face. That's the short end. Explain something to me. Why did you take his belt off? I didn't take his belt off. How did his belt get off of him? I have no idea. And I think when it happened, when he first went back there with that load, you followed him back in there, you had a confrontation with him. He never even got off that ATV. Yes. You had to pick his ass up and drag him over to that water and throw him into it. I do not harm that boy. The boy's dead. What do you mean you didn't harm him? Did he die immediately? He was still breathing when you put him in the water. He was breathing in the water. His lungs filled with water. Did you know that? I didn't do it. How close did you get to him when you shot him? I did not do it, sir. That is the honest to God. That's not the truth. Yes, it is. This went on and on for over an hour. And every time Skip was accused, he denied any involvement in the crime. And for the most part, investigators really had no hard evidence suggesting otherwise. All they had was circumstantial hunches. Sure, they had John's gun, but they were stuck waiting on initial lab results and fingerprinting to come back for that. Meanwhile, before they let Patrick and Skip go on July 10th, they tested both of them for gunshot residue and accompanied them back to their houses to collect the clothing and shoes they'd been wearing on the day John died. Detectives didn't collect Pat's clothing, though. They only took a pair of white tennis shoes she said she'd worn over to the trash pile. Within a few hours, the GSR results for Skip and Patrick came back as clean, 
That proved that neither of them had shot a firearm recently, or at least there was no residue left on their arms and hands by the time they were swabbed on July 10th. After that, FDLE impounded Skip's pickup truck, which, according to the registration, technically belonged to his late father and also Pat Strader. FDLE hauled it off to the crime lab in Fort Myers. While state agents sorted through the physical evidence and decided what to send off for blood, DNA, and fingerprint analysis, five days passed, and on Tuesday, July 15th, one week after John's death, the DeSoto County Sheriff's Office decided to change up how they were going to keep questioning their prime suspects. You ready? Ready. Mr. Strader, we've come in the pasture to the main gate. On a sweltering summer afternoon, armed with a video recorder, they took Patrick, Pat, and Skip out to the Southeast Hansel Avenue crime scene at separate times and had them once again go through their stories. I saw the host of car. And what happened? That's on the next episode of Counterclock, Suspicions. Listen right now. The living room is where you make some of life's most beautiful memories but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture from Ashley Store is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley Store's high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, comfortable, and easy to clean for more mess and less stress. Shop the life-resistant, high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 